Black Chat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles-Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. Ha, today we're bringing you the news you might not have seen in the headlines. First up, we have Canterbury-based Indigenous artist Jason Wing, who's unveiled a new mural at Hurlstone Park. And after that, we're looking at the impact of the 2018 Data Sharing and Release Act, which gives the government the power to share their data on you. And after that, we have Zoe Robinson from Y Foundations to discuss the increasing prevalence of youth homelessness in Sydney, especially in the inner west. But before that, we want to hear from you. What are you prepared to do to protect your data online? From deleting Facebook to reviewing your privacy settings, let us know on 0409 945 945. Stay tuned for a bang of a show. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Well, in this beautiful weather, we really encourage you to check out the new mural in Helston Park by Canterbury-based Birapai artist Jason Wing as part of the 2019 Wurridgil Festival. The mural was unveiled last week as a celebration of the Cooks River. And we're lucky to have Jason Wing in the studio today to speak to us about his artwork and the resurgence of Indigenous art in mainstream culture. Hey, Jason. Hello. So, for those of us who haven't seen your mural, can you describe it for us? Sure. Um, so Pamela Woolley was a resistance warrior and the uh, an Aboriginal resistance warrior. So the image is is based off a colonial depiction of him. But I've, um, you know, with our own narrative, I've changed uh, Pamela. He's got a crow's head and he's, you know, turning into crows and feathers. And um, But there's no... He, he's such an incredible leader. He was a real man. Um, and um, basically there's no significant celebration of him and so this mural is part of that acknowledgement and to try and get Pemawoy to be like a household name for all of Australia. And so could you explain to us like what is Pemawoy's significance to Indigenous culture? Well he's significant as a leader Um, essentially he saw his own family and other Aboriginal families get murdered um, with the frontier wars and so he ran ahead and warned all the mobs and and united all of them uh, to warn them what was coming and um, he's essentially been written out of history. Um, he had assass- assassination squads sent after him to murder him because he was such a pain for the colony for resisting. Um, so much so that they ordered his head and it's still over in London at the moment. And so for mm. us as Aboriginal people, it's really important that his remains come back so that his soul can rest. And Sorry, his head is still in London. Yeah, it's a trophy. It's a war trophy. Is it in a museum there? Do you know, do you know, tell me more about that. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's neither confirmed or denied. Um, it's allegedly lost in an administration error or potentially bombed in World War One or Two. But as Aboriginal people, we don't believe that's the case. And um, we spoke to um, Prince William about it recently. Oh, okay. So it's great that this mural is, um, I guess, celebrating the work that Pamoy did. Um, mm. You know, what is the significance in Indigenous art in Houston Park and in that inner west area? Well, I, I think it's significant everywhere. Um, I think everywhere should be doing it and the councils and state governments should be funding it. 
um, and the councils need to hold developers financially, you know, to mandate that that's the case. Um, it's significant because there's an extreme lack of visual Aboriginal presence anywhere in Australia. So it's really important that us as Aboriginal people create that narrative and remind people that, you know, this is stolen land. So earlier this month, uh, there were handprint Indigenous rock art that was found in the Blue Mountains. Um, it was found whilst track work was underway. We were talking about a bit about it just before the show, in fact. Um, uh, what, what were your thoughts on that when, when you heard the story? Um, well, look, it happens all the time. Um, essentially, any major construction um, throughout anywhere of Sydney, um, you'll find Aboriginal remains, and those remains are often um, buried, removed... Um, not reported and when they are taken like we don't have a keeping place in New South Wales so they just disappear they go um, with tokenistic um, archaeological feasibility reports but um, essentially if it's holding up millions of dollars of work it just gets removed and buried and um, at least if that is going to happen fund a keeping place so that you know we get access to this information this happened at the digging up at the um, uh, the tram lines I think on um, Allison Road, I think, and um, they found one of the most significant finds where there were tools from all different mobs, and there was no. It was really bizarre because often that doesn't happen, and so one of the theories is, is that that was like a last stand, like a call out, like, "Hey, we all need to meet here, gather." This is like the last fight, so that's one of the theories to explain the different objects all in one spot. But again, you know, this happened, and then it just dies in the media. Nobody hears about it. What happened? Where where are these artifacts? Um, same as in 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 the mountains, like. You know, that's evidence of the Darug Nation, which again is also being erased in a modern warfare campaign of expanding boundaries and, you know, grabs for assets. So, you know, there's there's this erasure on so many levels. Um, it, I mean, it just happens all the time, but, but people need to be accountable and, and we want access to those objects. So I, I'm listening to you and it reminds me of a conversation we had with Nathan Sentence, who we mm. spoke to about before. He's been on the show. He's an Indigenous curator for the Australian Museum. And he talks about how, okay, it's all well and good Indigenous artifacts and artwork are being displayed. But the problem is that Indigenous artists or Indigenous people are not the ones who are choosing how we're displaying it or, or you know, where it goes. So I'm curious, when you hear things about you know, track work, they're stopping trains and they're pulling out a boulder with you know, indigenous handprints on it, 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 I mean, do you ever wonder who is in control of what happens with the artwork afterwards? Well, it's not Aboriginal people. Hmm. Um, I mean, look, this, this, look we, we, we have, you know, we have cult, significantly cultural objects being destroyed every day because of mining. Hmm. Um, and and plundering of assets. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't. The, the solution lies with the people in positions of power. Yeah. Um, and really, that's that's federal, state, local. But it seems to be against their their own agenda. Um, Absolutely. So, Jason, um, yeah. you've spoken a lot about how. Uh, Indigenous artists and Indigenous artwork really need to have more of a platform in Australia. Mm. Um, what would you suggest needs to be done? Like, how how should we go about it? I guess as a society. Ooh. <laughs> well, if you were in charge, if you were in charge, Jason, <laughs> sure. what would you like? What would you like to see? Well, you know, I mean, I think look, Australia can't even get over the fact that this country was invaded. So, you know, I mean, if it starts with Terra Nullius, like this, 
under the Western law, they broke their own laws in the forced invasion of this country. So until that's that's acknowledged properly, I mean, how you know how can we possibly move on? Um, I mean, I mean, there's so many ways to move on, but do, you know, the question is, does the government want it to happen? Because they could do it overnight if they want to. Um, but uh, look, it's a big. Pro- I think it's a social shift. It's political, financial, artistic. I think you know, it's all of these shifts, but. You know, the work should be coming from non-Aboriginal people. Really. Absolutely. And it should also be um, the media who are also showcasing this as well. Oh, well, you know, the media. Yeah. Oh, uh, the media. Not you guys. But, I mean, <laughs> if we, I mean, if we look at the Sunrise, local Sunrise protest, I mean... What's the local Sunrise protest? Oh, well, they, they were calling for a, a second assimilation policy, like forced removal of Aboriginal kids. But oh, Sunrise um, on Channel 7. Sun, yeah, Channel 7 Sunrise, oh. sorry. And and so anyway, and so we're out there protesting, and then they basically just green screen the pro. They they showed looped footage of the day before to erase us from protesting against such racist uh, policies. So we're erased visually. Um, we're not invited to the conversation. We're not invited to the expert panel of white people with no relevant experience, or you know. And and we're not at the table. We're not invited at the table in the mainstream media and we don't get to say our narrative and we're erased and like it's just you know yeah absolutely it's big it is is huge it's enormous we're going to continue to um keep showcasing these issues on back chat um jason thank you so much for coming on the show thank you we really encourage you all to check out your mural it's in helston park do you know where exactly what street oh it's 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 ewan park um but can i so sorry i really need to quickly say something yeah there's going to be another launch to another mural um uh, at the back of the Australian Design Centre on the 30th of May. Um, so come down and it's it's a Gadigal mural and it was team effort and, and as part of the project um, through the Australian Design Centre we're 3D printing artefacts and things to stick back in place. So I guess that kind of, that all ties up nicely. Yeah, and awesome. We'll yeah. Uh, tweet our details about that event. Yeah, great. Great, awesome. Well, that was Jason Wing, a Sydney-based Indigenous artist, chatting to us about his new mural in the inner west suburb of Helston Park. Stay tuned because we have a package from one of our back chat reporters about a data-sharing bill which could have unintended consequences for Australians' privacy. Yep, and we've got a question we're asking our listeners in the lead-up to the federal election next month, which is, what would you do to keep your data safe online? Let us know on 0409945. That is 0409945945. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative (laughs) to talk back. Have you ever thought about how much data the government may have on you? Have you ever wondered what data do they have and how do they use it? Well, Backchat reporter Lindsay Riley has investigated these very questions following the introduction of a bill last year allowing governments to freely share data they may have on you to companies and other government agencies. Here's Lindsay with the story. With Australians set to hit the polls in May, the major parties stand in opposition when it comes to many policy areas. Energy, housing affordability, tax, you name it. They probably don't see eye to eye. But it's fair to say data security won't be a key issue in the lead-up to the federal election. Despite some differences, Labor and the Coalition are generally agreed on issues of data sharing and privacy. Last year, the federal government introduced a bill to Parliament called the Data Sharing and Release Act. It received scant media coverage, despite issues of personal data and online security dominating headlines. This is unfortunate, given the potential ramifications of a bill like this passing. 
In essence, it would allow unprecedented access and sharing of all types of personal data belonging to Australians. They want to share and release your, your data, um, or rather data that the government holds on you. And when I say government, I mean all of them. The, the scope for this particular piece of legislation is, I think it says, all Commonwealth entities. So that means things like Centrelink, the ATO, so the tax office, anything to do with Medicare, pretty much all of the Department of Human Services. It opens up the possibility for governments to do things that are currently prohibited. That's Justin Warren from Electronic Frontiers Australia. He says the Data Sharing and Release Act is problematic because it allows for the sharing of Australians' personal data between government agencies. This means bodies such as Medicare and the Australian Tax Office would be allowed to share information with Centrelink and so forth. That's a whole lot of personal data. Justin's main concern with the bill is that it poses serious security risks. And due to the government's recent handling of tech issues, he says Australians aren't ready to trust them with their personal information. Trouble with that sort of system is that when you create this great big database of information, it will get hacked. It constantly does. There is some language in there to say, oh, we'll only use it for appropriate reasons and we'll make sure that, you know, we'll be careful with sensitive data. But if anything over the last 10 years has shown us that the government's level of care and diligence when it comes to dealing with people's personal data is, is not great. It's not only Justin who has concerns about the bill. Director of Digital Rights Watch, Tom Solston, says he has serious concerns about the potential scope of data sharing. For example, he thinks the bill doesn't properly deal with the issue of whether the government needs permission from Australians to access their personal data. One of the things that we believe in very strongly is the concept of consent around one's own data. So being uh, a sovereign over your own personal information and being able to make meaningful decisions about what you consent to be done with that information, who you want to share it with, which parts of that information you want to share, who they're allowed to share it with. All of those sorts of things we feel need to be baked into this so that as an individual I can be confident that I can make informed decisions about who I'm giving my data to and why, uh, and that it is in my best interest to do so. However, the government's Interim National Data Commissioner, Deborah Anton, argues that asking for consent is a timely process, especially when there are more convincing arguments in favour of data sharing. The privacy regimes the world over all have this component in the legislation that basically says there are a certain set of circumstances where the public good is of greater value. And so this is where, I guess, we, we think about what we're trying to achieve for the whole community versus an individual. And that's going to be different for every person. I understand that. When you look at privacy regimes the world over, governments across the world have made a decision that there are certain circumstances that outweighs that individual consent framework. Ms Anton insists enhanced data sharing between government departments is a good thing. She says it helps the government make better informed policy decisions. Service delivery is often an easier example. So if we look at some of the contemporary examples of service delivery and how the government shares data, your my tax at the moment is effectively the ATO taxation office bringing together the data that they hold about you and then representing it back to you when you log on to my tax and saying, here's what we know, is this right? There is a potential danger of certain data being shared with agencies that perhaps shouldn't have access to particular data sets. According to Tom from Digital Rights Watch, this practice may unfairly target marginalised and vulnerable communities. There's also a, like a particular risk of misinterpreting data that is intended for one purpose and when you use it for another. 
So, for instance, you could imagine Centrelink having access to someone's My Health records, where a doctor might have said, "Oh, you'll be recovered in three weeks," and then Centrelink says, "Oh, you, you've not been recovered in four weeks." So the doctor said it would be three, so we're going to cut off that last week of Centrelink from. Tommy's also critical of the bill's vagueness, particularly when it comes to the term of trusted users. If passed, it would allow identifiable data to be shared with these trusted users. But the bill doesn't specify who would be considered a trusted user, and this brings alarm bells, especially if there's a risk personal data may be sold or exploited by non-government entities and or businesses. Um, so you could well imagine anonymised healthcare information being made available because that's a useful thing for say academic researchers to have access to if you want to you know do studies of, of healthy people in the population but if the anonymization has a flaw and other actors such as insurance companies are able to get hold of that they will be able to de-anonymize that information and rack it up premiums or refuse coverage to individuals that they may have re-identified. When asked about the definition of a trusted user Miss Anton said there would be an accreditation process to make sure the person is someone the government can trust. There will be a test about, okay, well, who do we trust? Um, so that's about making sure that they're doing something that has value, that they've got the right training, that a government department or an institution says it's a worth of a piece of research to do. That's all part of an accreditation process and what we're envisaging. Government representatives have spent months travelling Australia, consulting experts and data professionals about the bill. But Lindsay Jackson, President of Electronic Frontiers Australia says there's still a frustrating lack of dialogue between the government and technology experts. The problem with that is that for this government, it often seems to end up in disaster because they miss fundamental things. Um, they miss listening to really critical voices. They miss looking at some of these issues that have already been discussed and solved and worked on within the technology and the and the research community, rather than using the broader community, it, it's kind of, this is what we've been doing, we want to show you, we now need to sign it off as quickly as possible, and, you know, thanks for coming. It seems far too often that the Australian government tries to push through technology-related legislation without proper consultation with experts and citizens. We've seen that with My Health Record and last year's Access and Assistance Bill. More importantly than ever, experts say Australians need to stay informed especially when it comes to technology and their personal data. Be as informed as you can be, do learn about it, do talk about it and um, get involved in this conversation because if we don't, then we may lose a lot of the protections and rights that we currently have and we really need to talk about this more as a society before that happens. That was Lindsay Riley on the proposed Data Sharing and Release Act and its potential ramifications on the uh, security of Australians' privacy. The, the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact Chat, your alternative to talk back. Homelessness is on the rise, especially in Sydney's inner west, with more than 30 people found rough sleeping in a range of locations. These include parks, footpaths, vehicles, tents and shop fronts and behind offices. The figure comes from the annual Inner West Street Count, which targeted several homelessness hotspots. But this is only a glimpse of homelessness in the Inner West and around Sydney. Less visible is the number of people either couch surfing or in overcrowded accommodation like boarding houses. 
And a lot of the time, these people are likely to be young and underpaid. We've got Zoe Robertson from Y Foundations in the studio with us to chat about rising youth homelessness figures and what the major parties are doing to tackle the issue in the lead up to next month's federal election. Hello, Zoe. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No, our pleasure. So what is the extent of youth homelessness in Sydney? Just how many people are sleeping rough every night? So in terms of sleeping rough, uh, there's around 200 uh, that are sleeping rough any night in Sydney. Uh, across New South Wales, you're talking about 9,000 young people who are uh, without a safe, stable home. Wow. And when you say young people, what's that age range? So the age range that I'm talking about is 12 to 24, but we are seeing uh, children as young as nine as well who are in um, unsafe and unstable accommodation. So it seems like the face of homelessness is changing. Are, are people living in boarding homes and temporary and crisis accommodation also counted in this number? So when you're talking about rough sleeping, it is physically that, that visible rough sleeping that you're seeing on the streets. Uh, we do do account for how many young people or people that are in crisis accommodation and temporary accommodation on the night of those counts. So we are including that, but we don't include numbers like uh, couch surfing, which is the unrepresented number uh, in those stats, but that's where a lot of young people will find themselves. So what exactly is temporary and crisis accommodation like? What are the conditions there? Can you explain it a bit for us? So crisis accommodation is with specialist homelessness services. And so that is uh, a temporary place where a young person can stay for up to three months. And that is typically a home uh, with a number of bedrooms uh, and, you know, kind of a kitchen and a communal area where the young people can be. Uh, but they can only be up there in there for up to three months. Temporary accommodation is usually hotels, motels, caravan parks. So why is homelessness such a problem for young people right now? Is it rising as a problem? So youth homelessness has risen at a rate of 92% since 2006. So we've seen a huge increase in youth homelessness. Uh, and some of the main reasons that young people find themselves homeless are housing stress, uh, domestic and family violence and mental health. And what I want to say in that is it's not necessarily just um, them that is experiencing that. It's often because the family is going through housing stress or financial stress um, and the domestic and family violence is something that they're witnessing and that they want to escape from. So those are the three kind of leading causes for youth homelessness. And we're seeing more and more families being impacted by financial hardship and housing stress. And so that's obviously leading to stress in households, which young people are experiencing. Uh, and we need to be clear that uh, these young people are often in these situations through no fault of their own. So um, a lot of people will just assume they're bad eggs who don't want to be at home. I want to clarify now that they're not bad eggs who want, don't want to be at home. It's due to other um, circumstances that see them sleeping rough or in overcrowded dwellings or in crisis accommodation. So Zoe, what do you do at Y Foundations and what is Y Foundations doing to, I guess, help alleviate this problem? So Y Foundations is the New South Wales peak body for youth homelessness, which means we represent the services who provide support to young people. So services that people would recognise are those like youth off the streets. Uh, but we've got services all the way up to the border in Tweed Heads, uh, all the way into Albury and all the way down south. And so um, they provide support for young people and that can be accommodation, but sometimes it can just be um, a drop-in centre where people can go after school. And what we're doing is we advocate for those services and for the young people. And the biggest part of it for us is changing the conversation and changing um, the way people are talking about and thinking about these young people who are experiencing homelessness. We've got Zoe Robinson from Y Foundations in the studio with us and we're talking about rising youth homelessness figures and what the major parties are doing to tackle the issue in the lead up to next month's federal election. And speaking of, are they doing anything in the lead up to the federal elections? So we have seen some commitments from both Liberal and Labor around uh, affordable housing uh, and social housing. And so that's 
exciting, but it's not nearly enough. Um, there has been some commitments in terms of investment for mental health. And when we're talking about young people experiencing homelessness, as I said before, it's not just the, the house that we're talking about. We're talking about a whole range of issues. And so the investment in mental health is a welcomed investment. And we are seeing some investment in terms of TAFE and education. And so when we start to really tackle all of those issues that are facing young people, we will start to make some inroads, but it's not enough. And it's not the conversation that people are having isn't about youth homelessness. It's about things that can sort of help the issue, but we need to be thinking more about affordable and social housing and different kinds of accommodation for young people, as well as that investment in mental health and domestic and family violence services. So uh, I guess what advice would you have for other Australians who are hoping to, to help, I guess, with the crisis? So the first thing I would say is change the way you talk about young people who are experiencing homelessness. Don't make assumptions about them and we need to start removing that stigma. Um, the young people that we work with, we have a Youth Homelessness Representative Council and they are the bravest, boldest, smartest, um, most inspiring young people that we work with. Uh, so we need to create space and create room for young people to share their stories safely, honestly and openly. Uh, we also need to work harder um, together as a community to solve this problem. It's it's not just a government problem. It is a business problem. It is a community problem. We need to be where it matters for young people. We need to be in the schools having conversations. And it doesn't have to be a homelessness conversation. It can be a mental health conversation. Um, it can be a domestic and family violence conversation. But we need to meet young people where it matters and we need to give them the platform to share their stories and we need to do that without judging them. So I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that the housing crisis is a part of the problem of homelessness. Um, and you know, the government is coming out with initiatives like making it easier to get a loan, perhaps, you know, helping them out when it comes to buying the first home. But to me, is that the solve for the homelessness problem we have in Sydney? No, it's not the solve for the homelessness problem. That that situation that you're talking about in terms of the first home buyers grants and things like that, that means for uh, the people that we uh, work with is that they would have come through a whole lifetime of trauma and gotten to a certain position that they might be in a position to go for that. But there's a whole bunch of work that needs to happen before that. And we know that by providing a sta safe, stable place in the first instance, um, that allows people the opportunity to get everything else uh, sorted or start getting themselves back on their feet. And so when we're talking about young people, the young people that we work with aren't necessarily thinking they the long-term goal is absolutely, maybe I'd like to buy a home, but actually I would really like somewhere stable and safe that I can stay for a period of time to start sorting out some of the other things in my life and start thriving in the way that I want to thrive. So it is one part of it, but there's so much more, there's so many more hurdles that people have to get through before that is a consideration. I guess, um, you know, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear a story of success where we've been able to help young people with the homelessness problem. Yeah, well, we see lots of great success. And what I would say in terms of success is it's what that young person defines as success for themselves. So we work with an incredible young man who has um, finally, uh, well, he's about to move into his first private rental, and which is really exciting um, and takes great pride in that. But it's been a 10-year journey. It's been a lot of trauma to get through. Um, is a manager in the role that he's currently in, does a lot of advocacy for us, runs our Youth Homelessness Representative Council and is now moving into private rental. So it's an incredible story of success. It's his success. It's the success that he gets to own and he's defined that path. But it's taken 10 years to kind of get to the point where he's willing and comfortable to share his story as well. Thank you so much for being with us today, Zoe. That was Zoe Robinson, the CEO of Y Foundations, chatting to us this morning. Awesome. Um, and that's all we have got time for the show today Aww. Aww. Um, anyway big thanks to our producer Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful and Pip Leeson and thanks again to our, our guests Jason Wing and Zoe um, and Backchat reporter Lindsay Riley. We'll catch you all next week but before we do here's Cool as Hell by Baker Boy <laughs>